Let's open our Bibles together to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. I've chosen to wrap up the summer by uh, spending time again in a concentrated way in one of the Psalms. And then, uh, Lord willing, after the Labor Day weekend, we'll begin working through verse by verse of one of the New Testament letters of Paul. Psalm 25 is where I'm at in my Bible, and I hope you are there as well. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my afflictions and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. There are many kinds of psalms. There are psalms of thanksgiving and praise, historical psalms, creation psalms, and others. But Psalm 25 is what we call a lament, a lament psalm. A lament is a prayer. It is a godly complaint that comes from a soul that is in pain. Lament complains to God, but not about God. A lament is an honest unloading of one's hurts and pains and trials and struggles to the one and only one 
who is powerful enough and gracious enough to do anything about them. In his groundbreaking Bible study on lament, dark clouds, deep mercy, Mark Vrogop defines lament this way, it is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. It is the path from heartbreak to hope. The path from heartbreak to hope. And one of the things I hope that you will see in this series in Psalm 25 is that God welcomes this kind of conversation with him. God invites us to bring our hurts, the pains of our soul, to him. There are many different laments in the scriptures which echo this truth, that God cares about us. He cares about the deep hurts of the soul that we endure in this broken world. And he wants us to talk to him about them and to look to him for hope. Now, we don't need to know the specific circumstances that David faced at the time that he composed this musical prayer. Evidence of that is the fact that the Holy Spirit didn't tell us what was going on. And there's really no way to trace when and where he was when he wrote this musical prayer. And that's a good thing, because otherwise I think we would be tempted to think that its truths don't apply to us and our situation. We couldn't say, well, David just didn't understand my situation. He wouldn't have said that if he was going through what I'm going through. He never would have said that if he had the, the, the dreadful past that I had. All of those excuses are completely stripped away by the Holy Spirit who gives us no indication of what David was enduring when he wrote these words. If we did know and we had all those kinds of excuses, I think that we would either despair that he doesn't really understand or we would feel as though we were let off the hook because our situation is different than his. But neither of those is an option for us. But from the language, we do know that whatever preoccupied David's heart was deeply painful. It involved enemies who were glad that he was suffering. His foes, he says, were many, and and they hated his guts, quite frankly. His suffering then revealed sinful patterns in his life for which he felt guilty and needed to confess to God and needed that cleansing from God. He was lonely and afflicted and in deep distress, and he needed guidance from the Lord. He just didn't know what to do. Through all of this, one commentator writes, David creates a setting of joyful confidence in the Lord who has not disappointed and will not disappoint those who trust in him. Our lives are filled with disappointments. We disappoint others, others disappoint us, but God never, ever will disappoint us. And so this is the theme of the psalm, that God will never disappoint those who strive to walk in his 
ways. Our life might be hard and at times filled with powerful fears and deep sorrows. But God will never disappoint us. A smaller, lesser theme, at least in these first three verses, is that of shame. I don't know if you noticed as I was reading, but in verses 1, 2, and 3, shame is mentioned three times. Clearly, that's an issue here. Webster's Dictionary defines shame as a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. It may also refer to a condition of humiliating disgrace or disrepute. In her helpful booklet, Help I Feel Ashamed, Sue Nicewander provides this definition. Shame is painful feeling, a painful feeling due to the consciousness of having done or experienced something disgraceful. She then quotes Ed Welch's description of shame consciousness as being exposed, feeling exposed and vulnerable and in desperate need of covering or protection. Shame often results in us feeling inferior and unworthy and beneath others, undeserving of their love. Shame leads to hiding, hiding from God and hiding from others. And it originated in the Garden of Eden. It's interesting that in Genesis chapter 2, before Adam and Eve sinned, it says that they were naked and were not ashamed. They were fully known by their creator. Nothing was hidden, and they were not ashamed. There were no other humans to hide from, and they had no reason to hide from God because they were living in perfect relationship with him. But when sin entered the world, so did shame. Do you remember the first thing that Adam and Eve did after they sinned? They ran into the garden and made clothes out of plants to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. And the shame that we feel as descendants of Adam and Eve basically appear in two different forms. First, there is a kind of shame that says, I am bad because of what I have done. And I will never be good because of what I have done. Personal sin produces guilt, and from guilt comes feelings that we typically may call sin shame. And this, by the way, is a healthy form of shame. This is God-intended shame because it is meant to cause us to sense our guiltiness before God so that we will repent and discipline ourselves toward life change and that we will run to God not away from him. Shame causes us to hide. 
Hiding our sin from others makes us think that we can do the same with God. We trick ourselves, we deceive ourselves into thinking that because others can't see our sin, God can't either. And then we don't take it as seriously as we should. And if we then pridefully refuse to repent, we begin to build walls between us and God and others whom we then sin against. We fail to enjoy contentment, acceptance, fellowship with God. Instead, we try to outperform so that we earn his approval. People who live a secret double life can get to the point where their heart becomes so hardened. The shame that they should feel doesn't do its work anymore. It doesn't produce the effect that will drive them away from sin to Jesus, who wants to make all things new. Causes us to hide from those who can help us the most. There's also a second kind of shame, which says this, I am bad because of what other people have done to me. So the first kind of shame is, I am bad because of what I've done. That's healthy shame. That should drive us to confession and repentance. But there's another kind of shame that comes from when other people sin against us. And we start saying to ourselves, I am bad because of what other people have done to me. I am of no value. I am worthless because of what other people have done to me. The sins of others hurt us in ways that cause these kinds of negative feelings and thoughts, which we may then call provoked shame instead of sin shame, provoked shame. Or it's shame that is provoked by the sins of others against us. And this is a harmful kind of shame. The first kind of shame is helpful, especially if we respond to it properly in humility and repentance. But the second kind of shame is harmful. It often damages the soul in deep, deep ways. It can steer us toward patterns of fear and escape. Hiding becomes the pattern of our lives. It can make it difficult for us to trust people again. And as a result, we build walls so that other people can't ever really know us because if they don't know us, then they won't be able to hurt us. So rather than walking through life's pains with perseverance and faithfulness as we trust the Lord, we avoid the people who might help us with the truth. So you can see that shame is both a gift from God and it can become a tool of the devil that he uses to cripple us and defeat us and lock us in his prison of fear. For example, if you were sexually violated or abused as a child, shame can control your Life, if you do not face that biblically, if you do not face what you went through biblically, it can control your life and control all of your relationships. 
you may be led to believe that somehow the abuse was your fault and that you should carry at least some of the guilt, some of the responsibility for what happened. Typically, this is not true. But the gripping power of shame and the lies that it speaks to us control us. Pastors or other church servants can feel this kind of shame after severe conflict. It may leave them feeling cut to pieces and bleeding on the ground, and they may fear the risk of giving themselves in service to others again. Or if you have experienced a major life failure of some sort, you fill in the blank. You may be held in a prison of fear and patterns of escape. You don't want to go there again. And yet, in spite of all of this, we have a God, we have a Savior who is overflowing with mercy and grace toward us and heals our hearts and the pains of our souls as we learn to trust him again and walk with him and let him guide us and learn patterns of obedience to him. I want you to know this morning that no matter what your painful past may look like, there is freedom and newness of life in Jesus. He loves you. He proved it on the cross. And he wants to bring you into this newness of life that is known not by bondage to shame, but by freedom. Understand that because of the gospel, shame does not get the final word in your life. Jesus gets the final word. And he has promised to walk with you. He has sent his spirit to be your comforter and guide. Every one of us here today, me included, has a past that is a mixed-up stew of these kinds of shame. We have sin shame. We are ashamed of the evil things we've done, and rightfully so. So when guilt does its proper work, we run back to Jesus. We run back to the cross where our sin was paid for, and there we find a merciful Savior who will never leave us and never forsake us. He will not hide from us even as much as we try to hide from him. And we have provoked shame. We are ashamed of the evils that were done to us because we feel vulnerable, we feel exposed. 
And we need to lean into the Lord for the strength to take the risk of trusting him again, to take the risk of loving again. It's one of my prayers for our church that we will become more and more of a safe place to be vulnerable. To expose our secret sin struggles so that the deceptive power of the devil devil is stripped away. To open our wounds to the healing balm of Christ so that his grace can restore. In Christ, we are being remade into something new. We have a Savior who is exceedingly gracious and patient with us, and he can redeem anything that we have done or has been done to us. Somehow, He can do that for our good and for his glory. But this requires a living faith that is rooted in a genuine relationship with the Lord. And it requires this heart that says, like verse 4, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Religion simply will not do. Living faith is what is needed. Living faith that is only developed as we learn to humbly trust the Lord, which brings us to our big idea this morning, and that is this. Trusting God is active, not passive, and produces habits of obedience as it clings to biblical hope. Just dissect that for a moment. Trusting God is active, not passive. Why do I feel that is so important for us to grasp today? Because I think that we tend to naturally think that trusting God is passive. One of the words the Bible uses to describe trusting God is the verb wait. And we sang about that verb earlier. But I don't know if you noticed while we were singing, I will wait for you. There were all kinds of statements of trust, active faith, active trust, clinging to hope, willing to follow. But we tend to think of waiting as passive not active. We're we're just sitting around waiting for God to work in his own time while we just sit there and do nothing. The Bible never presents that kind of waiting, never presents that kind of trusting. There is an active faith, there is an active trusting of God that puts feet to our beliefs and causes us to look to Christ and walk according to his word. Waiting around doing nothing is not how biblical faith works. True faith 
The faith that is alive keeps moving toward the Lord even as we wait for his intervention. As we were singing, I will wait for you, Lord. As we were singing Psalm 130, put to music, there were things in my consciousness that I'm waiting for God to do. And there were probably things in your consciousness as well. We all have these deep longings of our soul for God to do a work in us or in someone else. And and we are waiting, Lord, and we're praying, we're waiting, we're praying, we're waiting, we're praying, and it still seems like nothing's happening. But there is something happening. Because God is working while we are waiting, the prophet tells us. God is working while we are sleeping. True faith is determined to follow God's ways regardless of the outcome. True faith is not pragmatism. True faith doesn't say, I'm going to obey only if I know it's going to work right the way I want it to work. True faith says, okay, Lord, your word says this. I'm going to take that next step of obedience, trusting it's going to lead to the fulfillment of your good will. By persevering through difficult times, according to Scripture, we receive the strength we need to continue. This is what it means to wait on the Lord. It is only those who wait on the Lord who will find their strength renewed. Well, let's look at verses 1, 2, 3 in a little more detail, and there we find three truths related to active faith. What does active faith look like? Number one, if you have active trust in the Lord, then you will desire a growing intimacy in your relationship with the Lord. I say it that way because what I mean is you're not going to just want God do, to do the stuff on your wish list. You're going to want God to do stuff inside of you while you wait for the stuff on your wish list. It's about the relationship. It's about how God is changing you on the inside. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That, that lift up my soul is, is a, a figure of speech that basically says, I'm going to go to you, God. I'm going to go to you. I'm not going to stop going to you. And notice verse 2, O my God. There's a relationship that David has with the Lord. So where does David turn when the difficulties of life overwhelm him, when fear overtakes him and he loses all hope? He does not turn to his own ability to reason. He does not turn to the ways of the world or the counsel of the world. He turns to God and his reliable word. 
He knows that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And as he meditates on God's word day and night, he knows that that will cause him to grow in his relationship and he will know how to follow Christ. He pours out his heart to God in lament. I think of Psalm 38, 9. Oh, Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. All my longing is before you. What's that? That's a lament. That is, that is the writer dumping everything in his soul out at the throne of grace, knowing that all of that sighing isn't hidden from God anyway, but the very fact that he talks to God about it is a significant piece in the process of being healed and restored from all the hurts of life. Uh, turn to the right in your Bible to Psalm 42. There's another uh, expression of deep longing for God. I just love this psalm. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? But these things I remember. See, this is conscious turning. This is active faith. This is active waiting. There's nothing passive about this. These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The the, the sons of Korah here, they were musicians, they were worship leaders, and, and they're reflecting on how they used to lead the very people of God in great festivals of joy, and yet they themselves now find their own souls dragged very deeply down in the muck and mire of this broken world. And they've lost hope. Why are you cast down, O my soul? So they start talking to themselves. They start speaking truth to their heart. They stop listening to their heart and they tell their heart what to believe. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And that's the theme then throughout the rest of the psalm and even into Psalm 43. There are many who believe that that was one song originally, 42 and 43 together, because the theme is hope in God. When everything around you looks completely hopeless, what do you do? You make the choice 
to stop listening to your heart and speak to your heart instead and tell it to hope in God because God never disappoints. God never fails. God is truth, and he never leads us astray. And so when you find yourself in that kind of a situation and you, and you have lost hope, you have got to start talking to yourself, stop listening to yourself, and start talking to yourself and telling yourself the truth. This is what God's word says about my God. Therefore, I will believe. Therefore, I will hope. When you possess true and living faith, then you will desire to grow in intimacy with the Lord despite your circumstances. You will still be able to walk through the most painful trials of life with a certain level of contentment and joy in your heart knowing that he who is for you is infinitely greater than anything or anyone who is against you. There's a second truth here in Psalm 25, and that is if you have active trust in the Lord, then you will demonstrate that the Lord's ways are worthy of being followed. Look at verse 2. Oh my God, in you I trust. In you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. What does he mean? What's he talking about? He's saying, in the midst of these difficulties that he is going through, he's saying, I am choosing to trust you, God. Hope against all hope. I am trusting in you, knowing that you are worthy of being followed, even if those who hate my God think I am a loser for following God. That I am wasting my life in giving it to Jesus. The truth will hold you firm and keep telling you God is worthy to be followed and loved with all of your heart. And I think that probably here in verse 2, there are both ideological enemies and personal enemies that are in view. There just is not anything very specific here. The point is that those who opposed David are, are many, but those who opposed the Lord's ways were even more abundant. But that God will get the final word someday. And let me just be frank. If you watch too much news, you're not doing yourself a favor. Spend time in God's word, the best news of all. The one who continues to remind us that no matter what is going on in this world, Jesus is going to triumph someday. He's going to get the victory. No matter what the enemies of God Say, David was concerned about how the victory of his enemies would discredit him 
and, and discredit the conviction that a man must live by the help of God rather than by his reason or his own strength. See, waiting on the Lord sometimes means waiting for God to vindicate your righteousness. Uh, look again at another psalm. Turn to the right, Psalm 35. 35. You can hear again this longing, longing in David's heart. Verse 21, they open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Have you been betrayed? Have you been falsely accused in some way in the past? Who are you trusting in to someday vindicate your righteousness? Are you going to spend the rest of your life defending yourself, trying to make a case for yourself? Or are you going to drop it and let God vindicate you his own way and in his own time? What did the Lord Jesus do when he was wronged? He entrusted it to the Father who judges righteously. And you know what? Jesus hasn't even been fully vindicated yet. He rose from the dead. He's ascended, seated at the right hand of God. But he's still waiting for the day when every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess who he really is, the Lord. So I've had to ask myself at certain times in my life, if Jesus has not yet been vindicated, who am I to think that I should be vindicated? Maybe God wants this to be a part of our sanctification. The unearthing of stuff in our hearts that needs to be brought to him. See, trouble and conflict provide an opportunity for us to demonstrate that God is worthy of being followed regardless of the outcome. He is worthy. And there's a third truth I want you to see here. If you have active trust in the Lord, then you will defend your testimony against the shame of building your life on lies. 
verse 3. The active faith that submits to God's ways and God's word leads to the building of a godly testimony, which includes joy, persevering with joy. It's part of our testimony in this world. Rather than running away from trouble, we persevere with joy. In contrast, following the ungodly counsel of the world will eventually lead you to being ashamed. Ashamed that you testified that you knew the Lord and yet you displayed in your life that you follow yourself. Ashamed that you knew better in your head and yet you chose to follow your sinful heart and go your own way. And the warning here in verse 3 is that if that is the pattern of your life, then you will one day be put to shame. Indeed, none who wait for the Lord will be put to shame, but they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Those who follow the Lord will not ever be ashamed. Why? Because the Lord knows our hearts, and the Lord is the one who will one day say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. There is incredibly surprising good news for those who repent and trust in Jesus. When we, when we repent of our self-will and we turn to the Lord Jesus, there is incredible good news. And it's so surprising in the way that God says it in Hebrews 2 and verse 11. Listen to this. It's speaking of Jesus who was perfected through his suffering. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus our elder brother is not ashamed of us. He is not ashamed to call us his siblings. How? That is mind-blowing. How is that possible given the things that we have done in our life and the things that have been done to us? How is this possible? It's only possible because he became sin, the sin offering. He became the shame offering for us. He paid the price. He died in our place. He assumed the guilt of your sins and died in your place. His blood removes the shame. Listen. His blood removes the shame that comes from your sins and the sins that have been committed against you. Jesus is sinless, but he was treated as if he were the worst sinner and experienced the worst possible shame. 
When he offered himself in our place on the cross, he despised the shame of his humiliating death. He took public shame on himself. And now when we trust in him, what he does is he takes our shame away. God throws our sins into the bottom of the sea and with our sin goes their shame the shame that is associated with it. Whether they are our sins or sins that were committed against us. So let me ask you this morning. Are you struggling with shame? Do you feel ashamed about anything in your past? Ask yourself, is this shame connected to sins that I have committed or to ways that other people have sinned against me? Or is it a mixture of both? For me, it's a mixture of both. I'm guessing it's probably the case for everybody in this room. So, Go to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you and wash you clean from the sins that you have committed and ask him to remove from your heart any sense of bitterness or desire for vengeance toward those who have sinned against you. Talk to him about these things. Open your heart to him. And if you're trapped in a cycle of shame, then talk to a mature believer in Christ who can walk through some scriptures with you, show you the freedom that is to be ours in Christ. I love Psalm 34, 5. Let me just leave you with this this morning, 34, 5. Maybe you want to memorize this verse this week. Those who look to him are radiant, Those who look to the Lord are radiant and they shall never be ashamed. Psalm 34, 5. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who takes not only our sin away and the penalty of our sin, but also the shame associated with it. And he cleanses us and forgives us. And then he even has the power through his spirit and his word to do a gracious work of healing and restoration in us for the hurts that we have endured in this life and the ways that we have been betrayed and abused or sinned against in some way. God, we look to this incredible Savior. We thank you, Lord, that you're good. You're always good. Help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to grow in our active trust of you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.